So as I mentioned last week, Advent has four candles, uh, four different candles, and then throughout the series, we're also focusing on four different attributes of God. Last week, we looked at the prophecy candle and the hope of God in Isaiah chapter 9. Today, we will be looking at the Bethlehem candle and the love of God. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So I'm going to go ahead and read that for us. Luke 2 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius, I think it's how you say it, was governor of Syria, was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his home town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So I read an article this week uh, entitled, The Biggest Events of 2023. As we get to the end of the year, these articles start to come out more and more. Uh, And so I thought it looked interesting, so I clicked on it. And as you can imagine, it made me pretty sad. So I thought it would be fun to make you sad with me, okay? Um, Here are some of the biggest events of 2023. In February, there was an earthquake in Turkey that killed around 56,000 people and 6,000 in Syria. The U.S. had one of the deadliest wildfires in history in August in the state of Hawaii, a fire that affected some of our own members who have lived there um, their entire Lives. Ukraine continues to be at war with Russia. We saw a Speaker of the House impeach, followed by weeks of chaos, if you watch the news. Uh, and then finally, we saw 1,200 people die in, on October 7th in Israel in a war that continues to still go on today and that has killed many more. That's the highlights of our 2023. Glad you came to church today. Um, now, in January 1, on January 1, if I would have showed you all of these headlines, Um, You may have believed me, but there are many in here that I think would not have believed that all this could happen in one year. And if we're honest sometimes as believers, it's hard to look at the circumstances of the world and go, you know what? I actually do believe God is in control. I actually believe God is in control of all things. I think for the most part, some of us may not say it out loud, but some of us go, "Um, God, did you get lost somewhere? Like, did you take a wrong turn? Where are you in the midst of this? And so before we jump into the text, here's what I want you to hear. Whatever's going on in the world, whatever's going on in your own life, all is not always as it seems. All is not always as it seems. So let me read verse one again. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Let's talk for a minute about Caesar Augustus. Savior of the world, Uh, Son of God, divine ruler, right? We know these as descriptions of Jesus, but let's say you were living in the first century under the control of the Roman Empire. If you ask the people who lived there, hey, who do these titles belong to? Who would they say? They wouldn't say Jesus, right? They would say Caesar. That During this time in history, Rome rules the earth. In fact, the Roman government stretches all the way from England to India. It's a massive, people land, a massive piece of land, and it's a huge empire, and they were ruthless. 
They were a ruthless empire that conquered the world by slaughtering thousands of men, women, and children. There are historical accounts of entire cities being wiped out because the people in that town would not bow down to Caesar as Lord. They would crucify people along the Roman roads as a warning to anyone who would dare to go against them. If you go against us, this is what happens to you. And during this time, this is interesting, the Roman Empire would send heralds into the cities and into the villages. These heralds would walk around these cities and villages and they would proclaim, gospel, gospel. And when a Roman heard that, it meant joyful tidings. There is an announcement. We have an inscription from 9 BC from Augustus that says, the birthday of the God was for the world, the beginning of the gospel that has been proclaimed on his account. That's from the Caesar to the people. And as Caesar's worship spread, those under his authority were forced to bow down to confess Caesar as Lord and pay the appropriate taxes. And it didn't matter whether you approved of Caesar or not. Caesar was sovereign. So when Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem to be registered, they do it at his command, right? At Caesar's command. It would seem as though they are under Caesar's command control. I mean, after all, he's the one calling the shots, right? He's the one forcing them to go to Bethlehem. And today, it can seem like all the headlines go against us. It can seem like all the headlines go against you, that the circumstances in your life are not what you thought that would be, that no matter what you do, there is a higher power that is just determined to make it more difficult for you, or there is a higher power that is absent from your life. Yet the truth is that we see in this text God is moving all of the pieces just as he wants them. Look at verse 4. Joseph, it says, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Uh, Now, two things I want to show you. One is the name of the city, and the other is the name of a king. We learn that Joseph is on his way from Nazareth, which, by the way, saying you're from Nazareth is like saying you're from West Texas right? There's nothing there. No one wants to live there. Sorry if you're from West Texas. Um, I don't know why I said that. It wasn't even in my my notes. Um, But uh, just thinking about Seminole and Odessa and how I never want to be there. Um, But great place, lovely people. Um, But he's on his way from Nazareth to register in his hometown, which is where? Bethlehem, right? So 400 years earlier, before Jesus was born, God announced that the Messiah, God in the flesh, would come from what city? Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So he mentions Bethlehem, and then he mentions David. And we talked about this a lot in our David series, that God had made a promise, a covenant, with David, hey, I'm going to establish your house, your line forever, and from you will come one, forevermore, eternal. Your kingdom is going to be established, and my and the Messiah will come through you. And here in this moment, in this city, in this text, we see the purposes and plans of God. All is not as it seems. God is moving the pieces for his purposes. So here's the question. When you look around at our world, when you look at your own circumstances, 
Do you honestly have a tendency to question if God is actually in control? Like, do you tend to question, does God really have all control? Or do you question if the all-powerful God is actually a God of love? When you, when you look at the chaos, and for many of us, including myself, including myself, the chaos can trap us into thinking one of two things. Either God is not who we think he is, maybe he isn't all that powerful, maybe he doesn't really have a plan, so either he lacks power, or the other option is God has the power, he has a plan, but really when it comes down to it, he doesn't truly love me. He just doesn't care. So either God lacks power or God lacks love. That's the only way we can explain how the world is. And so there can appear to be a disconnect between the power of God and the love of God. But we have to remember all is not as it seems. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to spend uh, the next few minutes diving into a theological word that most of you are probably familiar with, but never really taken a deep dive into. Uh, Because if we can understand this word, then the apparent disconnect between the power of God and the love of God, hopefully we can unite those into something that brings us joy and hope. And that word is the word providence. Everybody say it with me. Ready? Providence. All right, let's talk a few minutes for how we, to un- or how we are to understand the providence of God, because that's really what we're seeing here in Luke chapter 2. God has set forth a plan in the Old Testament as far back as Genesis chapter 3, when he looked at the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve, and he told the serpent, hey, the woman's offspring is coming to defeat you. And over and over in the Old Testament, God points to a plan, to a promise that salvation is coming, blessing is coming, freedom is coming. And here in Luke chapter 2, Caesar declares, every person, you got to go back to your hometown. You got to be registered, which by the way, what was the purpose of the registration? Typical government, taxes, right? Um, It was for tax purposes, but God in his providence has made a promise in Micah chapter 5, this Savior, he's going to come from the town of Bethlehem, and he's going to come from the line of David. Where is Joseph from? Bethlehem. What line is he from? David's. Coincidence? I don't think so. So, summary of Luke chapter 2, God uses taxes to accomplish his purposes. Just saying. Um, The word providence um, comes from the word provide comes from the word provide. So pro, Latin word for forward, uh, in front of or on behalf of. So you might be familiar with words like pro-life or proactive. One is on the behalf of something and the other is to move forward on something. And then vide, so which means to see in Latin. Julius Caesar famously said, veni, vidi, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. The vidi in that statement is I saw. So in a way, providence can mean to see forward. And it's not just foreknowledge, okay? It's not just knowing something before it happens. It's more than that. For example, we have an idiom in English, see to that. You ever said that? Hey, can, can you see to that? What does that mean? Can you take the steps to make sure that that happens? I'm giving you, you know, if your boss ever says that, I want to make sure that you do that, that you see to that. So if you want a simple definition of providence, God's providence is God seeing to everything. He sees to it that it happens. One text that illustrates this perfectly is Isaiah 46. I'll start in verse, verse 8. God says, remember this and stand firm. 
Recall it to mind, you transgressors. transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And then look at verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And so here's what we learned from that text. God is saying, I declare how things are going to turn out long before they ever happen. And the reason I, t- I declare those things, the reason I know the future, is because I plan out the future and I accomplish the future. That the future is the purpose of God being accomplished by God. Does that make sense? He says, I've spoken, I'll bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will do it. In other words, the reason my predictions come true is because they are my purposes, and I myself perform them. So God is not a fortune teller, he's not a magician, he's not a mere predictor, he doesn't have a crystal ball. He knows what's happened, happened, well, he knows what's coming because he plans what's coming, and he performs and provides for what he planned. Now, Some of you theology whizzes might say, well, you're describing the sovereignty of God. Yes and no. The sovereignty of God and the providence of God are incredibly intertwined throughout the scriptures. When you begin to understand them, you see how they work together, and it's actually beautiful. And you see them both at work here in Luke chapter 2. God's sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. Right and power. Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. But, but notice, in that definition, right in power, right, um, it's, it doesn't speak to God's wisdom. It doesn't speak to God's plans. It's just his authority. That, God, you have the right and you have the power to do what you decide to do. When he decides to do a thing, he does it, and no one can stop him. That's sovereignty. Providence refer, uh, refers to his provision. Pro vide. I will provide. I will see to it that everything works together for my purposes. I will see to it that my purposes come to pass. I love Jeremiah 1.12. He says, for I am watching over my word to performance. For I am watching over my word to performance. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, when you roll the dice on the table, God not only knows what the numbers will be, but he picked the number that would be rolled. There is no event so small that he does not rule for his purposes. I mean, think about it. From uh, worms in the ground to the stars in the sky. In the book of Jonah, God commands a fish to swallow Jonah. Then he commands a fish to spit Jonah out. And then he commands a plant to grow. And then he commands a worm to eat that plant. He's commanding everything. He commands the stars in the sky. Isaiah 40, 26 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Not one star is missing. I love this text. Psalm 147, 15, check this out. It says, He sends out his command to the earth, and his word runs swiftly. 
He gives snow like wool. He scatters frosts like ashes. He hurls down crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and his waters flow. And then one more, Job, 17, Job 37, verse 11. I think we should have it on the screen. It says, he loads the, the cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. So snow and rain, cold, heat, wind, they are all the work of God. So when Jesus finds himself in the middle of a raging storm, he just says, peace, be still. And what happens? Silence. Everything falls and listens at his command. There's no wind, no storm, no hurricane, no cyclone, no typhoon, no monsoon, no tornado over which Jesus can say, be still, and it will not obey. Rain and drought health and sickness. Nothing happens by chance. He is moving all things according to here to his desires. And here in this moment, Caesar thinks that it is his idea to make people register and pay taxes in their home city. But God in his providence has spoken that the Messiah would come from the city of Bethlehem and from the line of David. He's declaring the end from the beginning. The ancient times things not yet done. And his counsel stands. He accomplishes his Purpose, purposes. And then you get the rest of the story. Um, the king is born in a stable, not in a palace. He's worshiped by shepherds, not nobles. So it would seem here, as you go throughout the story, that God is still not in control. He can't even provide a comfortable room for the anointed Messiah. Come on, really? Well, let's think about this. Who are the first people to meet the savior of the world? The shepherds. The lowest, and we'll talk about this next week, the lowest of the low. In God's providence, who does he reveal the Messiah to? The lowly, the poor, the humble. Isn't that what you see in the Gospels? Jesus will be an outcast who will probably primarily minister to who? The outcasts. That over and over, Jesus will go to the bitter, to the lowly, to the murderer, to the adulterer, to the wicked. Anyone who society thinks doesn't deserve the love of God, the providence of God says, let me show you just how much I love you. And here's the thing that we really have to understand if we're gonna grasp uh, the connection between the sovereign providence of God and the love, love of God. For most of the world, when we think of sin, right, we think of an action. Sin is getting drunk. Sin is lying. Sin is Coveting, and, and yeah, those are sins, but that's just scratching the surface of what sin actually is. There are, those are symptoms of the real problem. They speak of the external results of what is actually happening in, internally. And human beings don't have an action problem. We have a nature problem. That sin isn't something that humanity chooses to do. Sin is just something that we are. And here's the reality of our sin nature. Today, so if you walked out of this service today and you were just like, oh man, that was so good. The music was so cool. That speaker was so funny. The coffee was so good. And you walked out in here and you had this burden to just be a really, really, really good person. And you decided, I'm going to sell my car. So you sell your car, you sell your house, 
You take all your investments out of stocks, you turn in your entire retirement fund, and then you look up, upward and you look at God and you say, God, see all that I've done for you? I've sold everything. The reality is that even then, your status before a holy God is unchanged, even if you did all of that. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. If you decided today that for the rest of your life, you're only going to do good moral things, then the eyes of God, your nature has not changed. Sin is still what defines who you are. Your righteous deeds, the best things that you've ever done, are nothing but a filthy rag to God. It's a little daunting to think about, isn't it? The power dynamics at play between us and God. I mean, we have nothing to negotiate with in this relationship, and that's kind of scary. Um, One of my favorite things to do when I go overseas is to find one of those little shops where they barter with you. You know what I'm talking about? You walk up and and they're like, $20. It's a little painting or a little wood carving. And you're like, okay, 15 And then they're like, uh, well, how about 17 And you're like, okay, two for $30. And you just negotiate with them. It's a game to me. It's absolutely fun, right? Um, I think sometimes when we think about heaven, when we think about what it's going to be like when judgment comes on us, um, I think that's how we think that's going to go that there's going to be some negotiating going on. Like we're going to show up to heaven and there's going to be a whiteboard set up. And on one side, it's going to be all your good deeds, all your righteous deeds. And on the other, it's going to be all your bad deeds. And there's going to be some negotiating with God where you say, God, you don't understand the circumstances. I I didn't know. You think there's going to be some negotiating. But think about that. (laughs) Do you really think that God is going to negotiate your righteousness with you? He's the one who hurls Crystals of ice like crumbs. The stars were placed in the galaxy by his hand, and they continue to stay in their place by the power of his word. And the best thing that you have and I have is filthy rags. When you think about it like that, it's a little bit scary, isn't it? It's a little bit daunting. And so the question that normally comes up when when I've had, and I can imagine for you too, when you sit down and have this conversation with people, um, is one of two responses. The first response is, okay, so, so what do I do? <laughs> what do I do about that? Like, how do I fix the problem between God and me? And what's the answer to that? You can't. You can't fix the problem. Your nature doesn't allow you to. Or someone might say, well, won't God just forgive me? He's got a love after, way, after all. And what's the answer to that? No, God can't just forgive you. That goes against his nature. He he can't just let sin slide. Well, I'll allow it this one time. If you promise never to do it again. If he chose to just forgive you just because, then he would cease to be God. He would no longer be just at that point. And so what humanity tends to do, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about them. Just kidding. Um, What humanity tends to do with God is we tend to minimize just how serious our sin is. I mean, I grew up in a generation where you got participation trophies, right? When I was in, in the third grade, our school had this program called AR, Accelerated Readers. Anybody know that program? Where are my millennials at, right? Let's go. Um, 
Well, the way the program worked is if you read a certain amount of books during the year, you would accumulate AR points, okay? And if you got enough points, then you got to go to Mr. Getty's at the end of the year. So second, third, fourth grade, I got to go to Mr. Getty's. But my fifth grade year, the school made the decision to just let everybody go to Mr. Getty's because they didn't want the other kids to feel left out. And that ticked me off. It was the, I think it was the maddest I've ever been as an elementary school kid. I read like 20 Hank the Cow, Cow Dog books every year so that I could go to Mr. Getty's. Anybody know Hank, Hank the Cow Dog? Great book. And so when we think about our status before God, we have a hard time comprehending just how wide the chasm is between us and him. We want there to be a participation trophy. God, can't you see just how, I, how hard I tried? I didn't want to do it. But that mindset fails on multiple levels. I mean, think about it. Have you ever noticed how the characters of the Bible view themselves when they encounter God? You ever thought about that? Name me a person in the Bible who pointed to their own goodness when they were right in front of God, when they encountered him. Let me show you, okay? Abraham, Genesis 18, 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Jacob, when he returned after 32 years of exile in Genesis 32, 10, he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Moses, when God came to him in a burning bush and told him, Hey, Moses, you're going to lead the people out of slavery out of Egypt, what does Moses say? Exodus 3.11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Uh, later on, the next chapter, uh, Exodus 4.10, it says, Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then what does God tell him in verse 11? It says, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? are deaf, are seeing, are blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Notice what God doesn't say to Moses. Moses says, God, I'm, I'm not eloquent. Does God respond by saying, now Moses, don't talk about yourself like that. Don't be so hard on yourself. No, what does God say? He says, I know. I made it that way. I'll be your mouth. I'll speak for you. David, when he's gathering treasure for the temple in 1 Chronicles 29, he says, who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. I mean, David, in this moment, he is gathering all the gold and all the jewels from everywhere. He's gathering everything so that when his son Solomon builds the temple, there's all this treasure to put in there. You think that David would be proud of himself in this moment, right? God, look what I've done. You think he would puff his chest out a little bit. What does he say? He says, who am I? All things come from you, and it's of your own that we give you. God, I'm not giving this to you. All of this already belongs to you. Job, in Job 42.5, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. What does he say? Therefore, I despise myself and repent 
and dust and ashes. When Job is in the presence of a holy God, he sees his sin and he despises himself. Remember, this is Job, the guy who through the worst pain and suffering imaginable did not turn away from God. He did not curse God. His family and his friends ditched him and he never rejected God. You'd think that when Job saw God, he would feel better, right? He'd, feel, he'd puff out his chest a little bit. Look at all that I've done for you. He says, my eyes see you. I despise myself. New Testament, John the Baptist, Luke 3.16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a story about a tax collector and a Pharisee. The, the Pharisee prays and says, God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. You remember this story? The tax collector beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, one of them went home justified. Mark 7, a Syrophoenician woman comes up to Jesus and says, can you cast a demon out of my daughter? Jesus says, I'm not going to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. You remember what she says? Mark 7, 28, she responded to him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he says, your faith saved you. Paul in Romans 7, Romans 7, 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Note, so neither, listen to this, neither he who plants nor he who waters is what? Anything, but only God who gives the growth. Last one, 1 Timothy 1, 15, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Remember, Paul wrote 75% of the New Testament. If anyone has reason to boast, it's him. Notice, at any point, does God correct the view that these people had of themselves? No. And remember, this isn't self-deprecation. This isn't saying I'm the worst person in the world just for the sake of saying that you're the worst person in the world. It's also not in appear, uh, try, trying to appear to be humble. It's understanding who God is, and who you are. At no point does God tell anyone in the scriptures, hey, don't be so hard on yourself. Stop exaggerating your sin. He lets them speak. And understanding who we are before God leads us to understand just how deep the love of God is for us. That he doesn't love us because he has to. He loves us because in the midst of our sin, he chose to. God's love for you is not evidence of your goodness. God's love for you is evidence of his grace. So here's what's really happening when Jesus is born in a manger, in a stable in Bethlehem. You have God's sovereignty, that he has the right to do all that he pleases. And you have God's providence, that he will see to it that what he has planned is fulfilled. And you have God's love. God has become a man to accomplish what we cannot For 39 books, the entire Old Testament can be summed up in two realities. 
First, you have failed and sin has broken all that you see, even you. You are corrupted, you are evil, and your righteousness falls short of earning your place in God's throne room. But also for 39 books, we are told of a sovereign God that in his providence is making a way to make us right with him, that his love is beyond what we can fathom. And the only reason we can be whole, the only reason we can have joy, the only reason we can have grace is because God chose to give it to us. Consider this text in Ephesians 1. I'm almost done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then check out verse five. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? To the purpose, to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in what? In all wisdom and insight. According, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Yeah, you are a sinner, but God has a right to love you. Do you know that? He has the right to love you and he has provided a way for that love to be expressed through Jesus. God has the right and the power to do anything he wants. He is sovereign and he has the ability to see to it that all that he chooses to do is done. So when he says he loves you, there's no way that he can fail in that. There's no way. His love is unending. Nothing can defeat it. When he sets his affections on you and he adopts you as his son and daughter, that is eternal because he's provident. He sees to it that it happens. And he made a way for you to be loved through Jesus Christ that God chose to put on flesh. He chose to come from perfect heaven to broken earth, and he lived a perfect life, and he chose to die on a piece of wood that he created, and he chose to have pieces of metal that he holds together, driven into his hands. He chose these things so that we could be forgiven of our sin. And now in Christ, your nature has changed. You have been made new, transformed by the blood of Jesus, alive in his grace. And now you live according to the spirit. That's what Galatians says, not according to your sin. And by the blood of Christ, now you really do have the right to stand in the throne room of, throne room of God, free of guilt free of shame. On the day that you meet Jesus, there will be no whiteboard waiting for you. Do you know that? There will be no comparing your good and your bad. You will see the king, the lamb who shed his blood and you will worship. You will join eternity in worship because in God's sovereignty and in God's providence, he purchased your place in his presence. You will see him and you will worship. If that isn't love, I don't know what is.